Great. Thank you, Stana. Um, it's a great pleasure to be here. It's great um, to be giving an 18th century lecture in an 18th century building. Um, among other things, uh, I prepared myself for, one thing I didn't take into account is I might need sunglasses in Edinburgh, which I felt on my way over here from the new town. Um, the title for this talk, uh, A Retired Shopkeeper Makes Enlightenment, may sound a little odd to you, and I want to explain to you where it comes from. It's a bit of a tribute to a historian named Robert Darnton, who has had a long career at Princeton and has had a wide influence beyond uh, his own area of specialty, which is 18th century French uh, culture and society. Um, in 1984, he published uh, a book that became quite well known, The Great Cat Massacre and Other Episodes in French Cultural History. Uh, and in this book, Darnton contributed to the widening of topics that were legitimate topics for historians to investigate as aspects of cultural history. Now, most famously in this book, he dissected an occasion in 1730s Paris when a bunch of apprentices in a printer's shop held a trial of cats in the alley and then killed them all, executed them all, and thought this was an object or a matter of great, great hilarity. And Darnton uses that uh, as a way to suggest that historians, I mean, who needless to say would not feel a great deal of hilarity about killing cats, um, ought to um, approach their historical subjects uh, a bit in the way that anthropologists do uh, distant and different peoples, namely as quite other. Um, Indeed, he was encouraging historians to think of culture not as a list of great works of literature and art, or as a rota of famous writers and artists, but rather to think of culture as the lived lives of people in general, with all those unspoken assumptions and divergent beliefs and contradictory emotions uh, that animate ordinary lives. Well, from his interest in the killing of cats episode, one might not think that Darton had that much to say about the Enlightenment. Um, but indeed, his, one of his most important contributions was uh, a discussion of the Enlightenment. Uh, and his discussion of the Enlightenment was in keeping with the kind of concerns that came across in the Great Cat Massacre. Um, and what he said about the Enlightenment, this is a quotation, is the summit view of 18th century intellectual history has been described so often and so well that it might be useful to strike out in a new direction to try to get to the bottom of the Enlightenment and even to penetrate into its underworld. Perhaps the Enlightenment uh, was a more down-to-earth affair than the rarefied climate of opinion described by textbook writers, and we should question the overly highbrow, overly metaphysical view of intellectual life in the 18th century. Now, the way that Darton himself did it uh, was to investigate the lives and efforts of authors and publishers in 18th century Paris and elsewhere in Europe um, who published the great Enlightenment tomes, uh, but also had to make a living uh, and produced many lesser works and indeed many works that seem from that highbrow perspective hardly enlightened at all. So Darton helped to create an approach to history uh, that puts the life of the mind back into coordination with the life of the body. Uh, enlightenment, like all features of culture, is or was a social practice a certain kind of activity immersed in the general run of human activities. Now, to return to the Great Cat Massacre, uh, this orientation towards cultures and activities perhaps what explains why the titles of the chapters in the Great Cat Massacre are all sentences with an agent as a subject and an active verb. So the, the chapter about the Cat Massacre was called Workers' Revolt. 
And other titles were Peasants Tell Tales. A bourgeois puts his world in order. A police inspector uh, sorts his files and so forth. And so in keeping with that, I thought I would talk about the retired shopkeeper making enlightenment. And basically, I want to emphasize uh, in a kind of Dartonian kind of way that, first of all, the enlightenment is an activity or was an activity, but also that enlightenment um, mattered uh, to at least some very ordinary people. And the ordinary person who I'm going to be talking about today was this shopkeeper or retired shopkeeper named Edmund Rack. Now, to forecast, I mean, what do I want you to see in the story of Edmund Racht? Uh, first of all, it's a story about social and cultural change or social and cultural metamorphosis, individual metamorphosis, namely the way an ordinary 18th century individual could take advantage of his circumstances and his luck and make a new self. Uh, it is also a story about the way ordinary people could put to use, uh, to use some of those ideas that we sometimes think of as being highbrow, namely enlightenment and refinement that were so current in the 18th century. Uh, Rax is also a story about the way ordinary people could be brought into contact with quite elite people in relations that were delicate but viable. Um, but it is also a story about the stresses and strains that accompanied the gratifications of this sort of life that I'm describing. Um, I have to say, uh, my discussion is unashamedly English in focus. Iraq was English and spent his life in England. Uh, but at least it's not just ethnocentricity, since you can tell I'm a North American. Um, so to Edmund Rack. When you take the train from Cambridge to Norwich, you go through a series of small towns in the fens and farmland of Cambridgeshire and then Norfolk. One of these is Attleboro, which is midway between Norwich and Thetford. 14 miles to either town, uh, and this is where Edmund Rack was born, about 1735. And Attleboro, when you take the train through it, still has the air of a small and isolated place, and all the more it must have done in the 18th century. However, one of the interesting things about 18th century England, and it's also true of 18th century Scotland, is the way isolated places, or once isolated places, were being knit closer to the rest of the nation, economically, socially, and culturally. Printed material was circulating more widely, and indeed institutions such as coffee houses and assembly rooms were proliferating, often to be found in surprising locales. Uh, as an example, there were some 39 assembly rooms in 18th century Norfolk. Now, a few of them were in Norwich, the county town, but many of them were dispersed in other places. For instance, from 1709, there had been an irregular assembly in Beckles, which is another small town about equidistant from Norwich as uh, Attleboro is, but not a place necessarily you'd think as a center of polite culture. However, Rack was not from the polite classes, or as we might say, he was not from the assembly attending classes. His parents were Quakers, and his father was a weaver. And his mother had something of a reputation for preaching uh, in the area. And Rack, when he was a lad, uh, was apprenticed uh, to a shopkeeper in Wyndham, which was six miles up the road in the direction of Norwich. Now, little in particular can be said about Rack's education. Uh, the formal element, uh, if there was any at all, uh, must have been very early and quite limited. However, like so many others motivated to learn, he did achieve literacy and numeracy, which were probably taught to him by his own parents, uh, or in some very local and very humble teaching establishment. When Rack's indenture uh, in Wyndham was up, 
he was hired to run the shop of a woman in Bardfield, which is a small place to the northwest of Braintree in Essex, so moving a bit south, closer to London. Um, and by then, Rack would have been a kind of later teenager. The woman who owned this shop was named Agnes Smith, and in time, Rack married her. This is not so unusual uh, if, the, if the woman is a widow or single. Now, I know very little about Agnes Smith, uh, but, and clearly she was a bit older than her apprentice. Uh, and one imagines that Rack's motives were mixed in making this alliance. On the one hand, there's no reason to doubt that Edmund Rack and Agnes Smith had some sentimental attachment, since they stayed married until the end of Rack's life, uh, and the evidence is that they had a companionable life together. On the other, Rack's motivations may also have been material as well as sentimental, because it seems to me likely that Agnes Smith, uh, aside from owning this shop, probably owned some land and was related to yeomen and tenant farmers in that part of Essex. What is certain is that when Rack was about the age of 40, he and his wife were able to leave Essex and retire to Bath, uh, where the evidence suggests that they were under no compulsion to work for a living. It's clear that Rack suffered from ill health once he was in Bath, so it's reasonable to surmise that Bath's reputation as a health resort must have been among the motivations that brought him to Bath. However, Bath also offered a field in which Rack could pursue his interests and, as we will see, deploy his talents in a way that would have been impossible in any less cosmopolitan a place. Even before his arrival in Bath, Rack had built on the foundations of that early, fairly rudimentary education. It's clear from references he made in writing uh, that he had familiarized himself with a raft of English and Scottish writing of the century, uh, of the eight, basically of the 18th century and the late 17th century, poets, essayists, philosophers, and moralists. More than that, he had begun a writing career of his own. He wrote verse, for instance, and the first title he ever published, or the first fruit of his uh, verse writing, was something called Reflections on the Ruins of an Ancient Cathedral, to which is added an elegy on winter, a pair of poems that seem inspired by the style and popularity of Thomas Gray, whose graveyard uh, elegy had been published a decade or two before. And Rack's reflections, that, that those two poems, were published in 1770. But in Chelmsford, which is you know, a reasonably sized town, and as the colophon on the book indicates, it was sold by all the booksellers in Essex, Suffolk, and Norfolk. Uh, so the nature of this publication indicates the way a local man could use local resources to attempt to launch himself on a provincial public's notice. However, even earlier, that is before 1770, and uh, maybe 1768 or so, uh, it's not exactly clear, Rack had begun publishing essays in periodicals published in London. Now, the publication of literary and moralist periodicals was an important segment of the public indi publica publishing industry uh, in the 18th century from the time of the appearance of some particularly classic examples of this genre, namely The Tatler and The Spectator, uh, put together by Joseph Addison and Richard Steele at the beginning of the 18th century. Now, an important feature of such periodicals in the 18th century was the invitation they extended to readers to contribute in any number of ways uh, write to, to the periodical, writing letters to the editor, uh, submitting essays, submitting verse, um, answering riddles and paradoxes that were set by the periodical, and just uh, answering, propose, answering invitations to propose improvements in the world or reforms. 
Such periodicals encouraged the building of what has been called a community of readers, which was inclusive. Uh, this community of contributors to periodicals attracted men and women, lords and servants, metropolitan people, and provincial people. Clearly, our man Rack took advantage of this inclusivity because we find his contributions, usually under various kinds of pseudonyms, in periodicals with names such as the Monthly Ledger, the Monthly Miscellany, the Royal Magazine, the Sentimental Magazine, the Universal Museum in the late 1760s and uh, through the mid-1770s. And these were all one of, uh, these were kind of a sampling of a wide range of titles that were being produced in these years. So before he had even left Bardfield for Bath, he was developing a literary practice and some sense of himself as a literary man. Rack arrived in Bath in 1775 when he was about 40 years old, and he died 12 years later. As I will describe, he left his mark on Bath, most significantly by being one of the animating spirits of two societies uh, devoted to improvement and cultivation. He was the sort of local man who attained an obituary in the local paper. However, we're able to enter a bit inside Rack's experience of Bath because for a few months in 1779 and 1780, he kept a journal. This desultory journal of events, etc., at Bath, which is what he called it, was a kind of running letter to relatives and friends back in Essex. Uh, so this was a personal journal uh, that was also meant to be read by others. And many personal journals, of course, are not that way, but this was. Uh, and therefore, the journal had literary ambitions and is at times very self-consciously stylish. Um, but for all its literary qualities, uh, the journal also provides uh, reportage about his very social life in Bath. And as it appears in the journal, Rack's daily uh, and weekly itinerary is very diverse. He visits the pump room and the long room and the coffee houses uh, in Bath. He visits the market and picks up provisions. He stops in the town hall to hear some legal cases. He attends auctions and art exhibitions and sales. He attends lots of scientific lectures. He promenades on the parades uh, and other public walks and often accompanied by his wife. Uh, he reads and converses at the circulating library where he borrows new publications and he goes on rural walks which allows him to collect fossils and mosses which are things he's interested in. Rack loved what he called the sources of pleasure and rational entertainment available in Bath. Nor was he put off by the celebrity and glamour that surrounded him. He could go to the pump room on a morning and note the presence of the Dukes of Leeds, Marlborough, and Beaufort, and then list in his journal, by name, 12 lords, a baron, two judges, three bishops, and two generals who happened also to be there. He was susceptible, I have to say, to the overall dazzle of Bath in the 1770s. After somebody offers him a ticket to a concert, and after some de deliberation, he accepts. This is in the new assembly rooms. And he finds there, in his own words, the most brilliant assembly my eyes ever did behold. The elegance of the room, illuminated with 480 wax candles, the prismatic colors of the lusters, the blaze of jewels, and the inconceivable harmony of near 40 musicians, added to the rich attire of about 800 gentlemen and ladies, was altogether a scene of which no person who never saw it can form any adequate idea. 
However, he was not uncritical. He was willing to jest at the fashion victim in Bath, no matter how socially superior. So he wrote, Lord Chichester there, this is in the pump room, in a suit of crimson satin, fringed and lined with white fur, and spangled with silver stars. He was much stared at and laughed for being so foppish in a cold, snowy morning. There seems to be an unfurnished room under his hat, um, which is a nice 18th century joke, which has a kind of life uh, still, I would say. <laughs> uh, moreover, it is clear that certain characteristic bath activities are not part of his routine. Uh, one is the weekly ball, which he makes clear is expensive and an occasion for people he identifies as gentry. Uh, and also, he is selective in his appreciation of bath institutions. He regularly, regularly visits the assembly rooms, but condemns what he calls the tables of folly. He calls card playing and associated betting uh, uh, and gambling a stupid amusement. And on another occasion, he wishes that the treasure spent in these activities was re redirected again to what he calls a more rational use. Rack's diverse interests invited a wide web of connection. Uh, his most regular sociability was with men of somewhat similar status. One day he wrote, after supper I shall go and make smoke a pipe with my good friend Richard Crutwell, who is the only person I visit in, then what he says, in a free social way without any business or ceremony. Richard Crutwell was a barber's son from Wokingham in Berkshire. Uh, Crutwell had been apprenticed to a printer, and later he inherited some property from an uncle, and using that was able to establish a printing business in Bath. And in fact, he, had, he was part of the partnership that published the Bath Chronicle, the big newspaper in Bath in the later 18th century. The freedom Rack enjoyed with Crutwell was a contrast to other social relations. Rack's literary and scientific interests gave him occasion to converse less intimately with many others, and he took advantage of Bath's character as both resort and residence to meet with many temporary and permanent residents who tended to be richer and classier and better educated than he was. He describes meeting and conversing with eminences of the literary and intellectual world resident in Bath. His contacts included men who were very famous in their day, though now largely forgotten, whose names include William Melmoth and Richard Graves and William Watson and Josiah Tucker. Uh, lest we think this world was entirely made up of men, Rack knew Catherine Macaulay, who was a well-known historian, uh, indeed a kind of controversial historian, Whig radical historian, who was resident in Bath in the 1770s. And Rack also made, uh, knew a very interesting woman named Lady Anna Miller, who was another local literary and social celebrity. It was shared interest in natural history and philosophy in particular, which provided an opportunity for much sociability, which often moved beyond the most public venues in Bath to the private residences of gentlemen. He visited the houses of acquaintances for social cum learned interactions. For instance, he examined electrical machines, which were a fashionable uh, acquisition in the 18th century, in the later 18th century, and he participated in electrical experiments and games uh, in gentlemen's drawing rooms. Uh, he visited large personal libraries, and he viewed impressive collections of fossils and butterflies, mosses and beetles. One of the Quaker Iraq's more remarkable connections was Robert, Ninth Baron Peter, uh, who was a few years younger than Rack. Peter was from an old Catholic family and a leader of the English Catholic community when it was still led by landed aristocratic families. 
the politics of Catholic relief uh, were a dominant theme in Peter's life. However, he also, that is, Peter also had a range of cultural and scientific interests. Rack's own connection with Essex, which is where the Peters had, had owned you know, acres for centuries, uh, and the fact that both Rack and Peter were members of religious minorities, the Catholic and the Quaker, uh, may have played a role in this relationship. Certainly, contiguity in Bath and shared intellectual interests brought them into some association. Rack described Peter as, quote, a very pleasing, sensible, steady man. He has several times been to see me, and he stays some hours, conversing with the greatest freedom. Now, this conversation with a Catholic aristocrat must have been a different kind of freedom, or must have involved a different kind of freedom than that he enjoyed with the barber's son, Richard Crutwell. Rack seems to have been intoxicated with these interactions at the intersection of status and intellect. On the one hand, the interaction effaced, at least temporarily, and to some extent, social difference. On the other, Rack seems to have been excited by the very contrast between himself and those of higher status with whom he dealt. When Rack visited the library of Robert Madden, who was an affluent local gentleman, Madden, quote, told me I was welcome to take the books all home, one at a time, and look them over, so that here is a vast field of fine entertainment and instruction without any expense. For Rack, subordinacy led to much appreciated opportunities. However, he noted how Madden's politeness eased these opportunities. Uh, of Madden, Rack says, he is a very learned, polite man, and one of those few who take a pleasure in obliging, which renders the obligation doubly pleasing. Um, so that, I mean, here we have sort of an interaction where mutual, a kind of reciprocity is being developed on kind of mutual concessions that are mutually pleasing. Further evidence of the psychology of such interactions is evident in Rack's comments on his relation with William Melmoth, who was a writer of uh, 18th century bestsellers, which are now uh, pretty much uh, forgotten. And of him, well, Rack writes, I am never in his company, in Melmoth's company, without feeling a kind of awe and reverence from a consciousness of his great superiority to almost every other man. Yet he treats me with all that respectful ease and politeness which a person who is infinitely nearer on an equality could not wish to have exceeded. If there is anything that can justify a little self-estimation, sort of self-love on self-esteem on Rack's own part, it is certainly the notice and friendship of a Melmoth. And one of the things I'm incredibly interested in is just how you get these great social disparities, and yet there are these temporal, temporary abeyances of the acknowledgement of status to create what uh, Rack himself says, uh, a kind of equality. Rack expressed the pleasure of being with a superior that was enhanced and perhaps enabled by that superior's condescension. Condescension here was a beatific quality, not the negative behavioral trait with which it is now associated. As elsewhere, Rack made clear here that he believed self-regard was a legitimate personal resource, uh, and indeed an undeniable an inevitable one. I mean, he knows that he's, you know, that he's flattered by these interactions, and he says that's fine. Now, many of these same issues are apparent in another extended episode. Uh, Rack was a devotee of conversation, but conversation was not an easy exercise. 
It was an arena in which, given the competing forces of hierarchy and merit, of inherited status and laborious self-cultivation, uh, Rack contended for status uh, amidst these ambiguities about what it is really to be a gentleman. So I'm going to describe a kind of one uh, extended conversation he has and his reflections on it. One afternoon in early 1780, Rack received a visit from Sir John Smith, Lord Kelly, Lord Rivers, and Colonel Campbell, who wanted to see Rack's own collection of plants and grasses. Then Rack writes, as these gentlemen knew little of botany themselves, I came off very well. Having only to bring in hard names and a few Latin phrases and talk of Ray's synopsis and the Linnaean system and hermaphrodite flowers and all that, to obtain the character of a very scientific man. Now, in this situation, Rack detects that they were rather more ignorant in those matters than myself, and so he's able to pull off this kind of show of authority. However, he then continues, when gentlemen of real knowledge come, which I can soon discover, then I am more careful, and I talk Socratically about things, keeping to generals and speaking in terms which may be applied either way. So he wraps himself in a kind of fug of generality, and when he gets things wrong, he tells his guests, and these are his words again, they misunderstood me, and that my meaning was so-and-so. By this means, I am never hobbled either way, um, you know, whether the people know more than him or less than him. Um, and this is really the payoff. He says, I, by degrees, begin to learn in general what is really right. Had I but undertaken this task 20 years ago, I should certainly by this time have cut a figure. However, late in the day as it is, I find I improve and doubt not being able to keep it up for the good of the public. Okay, at this point, you know, he's writing to his relatives, but so far he's not really acknowledged them. But then there's a kind of aside where he says um, to these people back in Essex, um, now don't grin and say it is for my own good. Uh, for verily, I feel that spirit of patriotism within me, working like yeast. And surely, and then there's a quotation, the ox ought not to be muzzled that treadeth out the corn. Now, in this passage, Rack presented conversation as a game or a challenge in which the stakes were kinds of status. Now, on, this very, on the occasion he's talking about immediately, he's dealing with men of superior social status but inferior intellectual capital, at least with regard to plants and grasses and that sort of thing. So he has a strong hand. But he admitted that on other occasions, he lacked the advantage and had to play a rather different kind of game. Clearly, status and cutting a figure were at stake, uh, but so too were knowledge and improvement. Given his self-promoting maneuvers, he anticipated skepticism from the relatives uh, back in Essex about his interest in improvement, knowledge, and public good. Um, and he did, doesn't deny his egoism, his desire for self-esteem, for sensing that he knows things. Uh, but he suggested that egoism was not incompatible with more altruistic motives. And this is what he means at the end by quoting that line, which is from Deuteronomy. Uh, and what he takes the passage to mean is that if the ox eats some of the corn he is treading for the good of his master, well, this really isn't a problem. So he's both treading the corn and getting to eat a little bit of it. We don't have to plumb the depths of Rack's psychology to determine his motive. But what is certain uh, is that he operated in a world in which he could ballast his pursuit of personal status with an ideology of improving conversation. In the face of the decrepitude of his own body, he once wrote, the study of science, the investigation of natural bodies, the works of the learned, and the conversation of ingenious men renders the mind inattentive 
to the defects and decay of its tenement of clay. So far, I hope I've made clear that Rack illustrates the way a man of humble origins could, with luck and opportunity, enhance his economic and social position and cultivate himself in ways that allowed him to associate with a wide range of persons, many superior in education and social status to himself. Rack's experience of being subordinate in the intellectual and social hierarchies was mitigated by certain ideals of conversation and of politeness. Now, I want to pursue this a bit further with a discussion of a philosophical society that Rack had a hand in establishing in late 1779 in Bath. Now, at that point, he had already had a hand or played an important role in the founding of another society. This was in 1777. Uh, and the first of these societies was a society for the encouragement of agriculture, arts, manufacturers, and commerce. Um, and in fact, this society founded in 1777 has had a continuous history to the present day. It now operates under the name of the Royal Bath and West of England Society. Um, However, time only allows to discuss briefly the other society founded in 1779, the Bath Philosophical Society. On the evening of 27 December 1779, Rack had supper at the home of one Thomas Curtis. Curtis, again, was a few years younger than Rack, same generation, though. Curtis was an affluent Bath resident and a supporter of improving and charitable institutions in Bath and in that region. Curtis proposed that he and Rack initiate a new society devoted to philosophical conversation. They made a list of intellectually and socially distinguished residents in Bath, and starting the next day, they visited them one by one. Even by the end of the first day, they had already netted nine individuals who met that very evening and formed the society. Uh, this immediate success says something about the way that someone like Rack could harness the wealth and prestige and the energy of men superior to him in many ways. In subsequent weeks, Rack successfully approached others who included baronets and lords. I should make clear that the Bath Philosophical Society was not pioneering in its activities. If anything, Bath seems to have been, uh, in, in relation to this kind of activity, uh, you know, that's characteristically sociable and improving and enlightened, uh, rather late or behind the times. Um, and certainly, I mean, compared to Edinburgh, Edinburgh had gotten a kind of start on this kind of activity decades and decades and decades earlier. Uh, so my point is not that anything's pioneering about this activity. It's rather that it's typical. Um, and it's typical in attempting to embody formally an ideology of improving conversation uh, that had something to offer people of different social and intellectual degrees. The rules of this society indicate the power of conversation as a model for intellectual progress and as a framework for intellectual work. Uh, and these rules were written by Edward, uh, Edmund Rack himself. According to the rules, the aim of the society was to attempt, to, to attempt the discovery of truth and to improve the mind by reciprocal communications of knowledge. It followed that members enjoyed the liberty to discuss with moderation and freedom any subject within the circle of the arts and sciences, natural history, the history of nations, or any branch of polite literature. The sole limit on the freedom of discussion, according to the society's rules, was, quote, that for obvious reasons, and this is, it's great that the, the actual text says for obvious reasons, law, physic, divinity, and politics be never made the subjects of debate. 
And this rule recognized a long-standing, though variably expressed, norm of avoiding in polite conversation those topics that were most likely to degenerate into controversy and argumentation. For Rack, the founding of the society represented a formalization of conversational practices in which he had already engaged. Uh, and Rack was attentive to the degree to which the society fulfilled his discursive or conversational ambitions for it. Uh, for instance, I mean, he's always engaging in these evaluative activities. And on one occasion, for instance, he writes uh, that he was pleased at a, a meeting. The conversation was carried on with much order and propriety, and most of the members gave strong proofs of their ability to pursue the plan they have undertaken. Now, in this philosophical society, Rack's energetic social and administrative skill was appreciated. He was the first secretary of the society and its chief impresario. However, his account of the philosophical society indicates that um, even though he was respected in that way, he brought to it some of that diffidence about status that I've already mentioned. He wrote that, quote, as the society is to be quite select, we admit none but men of known abilities and learning in the different branches of science, myself accepted. I join it to learn wisdom, and it promises to furnish much. And so Rack sees himself not as exactly the equal of the other participants, but someone joining it for the sake of, uh, well, I suppose like them, a much rational improvement in instruction, in his words. But in a way, he sort of thinks that he has more to gain from it than the others. But at the same time, this is what's so interesting about these kinds of asymmetrical relations, Rack acknowledged that uh, as secretary, uh, he put himself in a position to exercise a shaping agency over this institution. He looks forward to having an opportunity, these are his words, of insensibly turning their attention to such objects as are, in my view of things, most curious and interesting. Indeed, at the next meeting, he noted this. This is a little extended uh, account by him. To this meeting, a letter was sent by an unknown person containing some very proper cautions and observations on the mode of conducting the prosecution of our studies, which was much approved and directed to be recorded. It was an anonymous letter. Several of the, men of the members said they believed it to be written by Lord William Seymour and were sure it was his handwriting. I did not contradict them, I did not contradict them though I knew they were mistaken, having written the letter myself. <laughs> and gotten John Eaton to copy it and put it in the office. So easy a matter it is to deceive wise men. <laughs> so if not precisely duplicitous, this episode suggests a willingness to be less than totally transparent. Uh, and Rack's behavior here is motiva motivated simultaneously by a sense of inferiority and by a sense of entitlement and in, in, in indeed a kind of confidence. Um, his contradictory attitudes needed to be bridged by a form of manipulativeness um, you know, in this episode, in a way, social values were reversed because the wise, I mean, who he's deceived, are shown to be rather gullible or deceivable. Meanwhile, the unwise, namely himself, uh, are shown to be cogent. And indeed, you know, for this brief epistolary moment, uh, you could say Rack found himself impersonating a man of much superior standing, namely this Lord William Seymour. The fact that Rack's contribution was mistaken for a lord's must have given a considerable spike to what he called his self-estimation. Rack thought of himself as an intellectual and social subordinate to other members of the philosophical society. 
Um, and despite his own intellectual and social career, which I've called ordinary, but indeed has some things about it that seem quite remarkable, uh, he was subordinate. The most august member of the society was Constantine Phipps, who was Lord Mulgrave. Again, a man who's a little bit younger than Rack. Um, Mulgrave was married to the daughter of John Harvey, the first uh, Lord Harvey, who was an extremely famous and important courtier during the reign of George II. So, you know, Phipps is part of the really uh, haute, uh, you know, aristocracy. Um, Mulgrave had begun visiting Bath in 1780, and though he was simultaneously busy as an MP, as a member of parliament, as a member of the Admiralty Board, and as an active naval commander in time of war, uh, um, anyway, so he was busy with all these things. I got lost in my syntax there for a moment. Um, and he had earlier led exploratory expeditions to the North Atlantic and Arctic, from which his own scientific interests and reputation had developed, and that's why he was invited uh, uh, to join this society. Um, you know, part of what I'm interested in is just what happens in those moments or in these settings where you've got Lord Mulgrave and Edmund Rack in the same room in some kind of interaction. Now, other members of the society were distinguished professional men who resided in or visited Bath, but others were men not that different from Rack in origin and in trajectory. One was a local dissenting stonemason. Another was an optician and instrument maker. Uh, another was a man named Richard Pulteney, who was a tailor's son from Loughborough, whose many gifts as a natural historian were insufficient to propel him out of Blandford in Dorset, where he felt like a beached whale. Thus, the Bath Philosophical Society was simultaneously exclusive and inclusive. Its membership was limited to 25 members, uh, but that membership ranged from Lord uh, Mulgrave to people like Edmund Rack. What exactly uh, did the Bath Philosophical Society offer this diversity of men? Well, the key thing is that it represented an attempt to formally embody an ideology of improving conversation that made room for people at different social levels. It required of these people a complex collaboration, a complex interplay on everyone's part of self-assertion and social concession. And I think we can say that Rack was a participant in the Enlightenment, though this was not an expression he or his contemporaries knew. And uh, I'm going to conclude by just talking a little bit about some ideas of Rack, which were very common at the time, but that really give you a perspective on the Enlightenment from Edmund Rack's uh, standpoint. He was well-versed, Rack was well-versed in a narrative of human progress, an enlightened narrative that grounded the transition from barbarity to civilization on commerce and exchange. He reported that one day at the circulating library, quote, some of the literati were conversing on the present rapid progress science is making in France and Switzerland. In the latter place, where ignorance and barbarism have reigned for many ages, the lamp of science is now diffusing its rays with great splendor. Even in that remote place, Switzerland, Gothic manners have given place to the arts which sustain commerce and the elegancies of polished life. Now, my view is that Rack saw his participation in the Bath Philosophical Society as part of these world historical processes. Despite his diffidence, and despite his recognition that the pleasures of conversation were partly compliments to his sense of self, to his self-esteem, 
Rack also saw that the individual had a role and was valued as part of a larger project of communication. Edmund Rack once aired the theory that underlay this posture. And again, he's reflecting on the progress of human, humanity and liberty in Europe in recent decades. He wrote, whatever cause brings men of cultivated minds and polite manners together from different countries, civilization, knowledge, and the love of science is thereby promoted. And these are the, the key words. Men of bright parts and learning, when remaining single in their different abodes, only twinkle at a distance like individual stars. When assembled together, they form a glorious constellation which enlightens the darkest hemisphere. They communicate light to and reflect it on each other and on all around them. Well, here an account of human progress is grounded in a conviction that sociability and conversation have the power to activate human talent and magnify human resources. Um, here, I would just say that the generalized version of progress uh, and this yoking of commerce and politeness become a kind of mythology for modernity, a kind of new sacred narrative offering individuals a place in a world historic development. Uh, it's a kind of secular theology to which a variety of Protestants, Anglican, dissenting, Quaker, could subscribe, and indeed a Catholic like Lord Peter probably would have subscribed if he'd been offered the opportunity. Um, Rack's own language, which is all about light and enlightenment, justifies our use of the category of enlightenment to characterize his worldview. At the same time, I think he was talking about politeness, uh, and not just politeness as the outcome of a historical process, but as the procedure for attaining progress and improvement. Now, both enlightenment and politeness or polite culture were on the side of modernity in the 18th century. They were both progressive in their outlook. But the modernity that they supported was an 18th century modernity, one that had very limited interest in modifying or challenging inherited political and social hierarchies. Uh, people like Rack knew well how to work in a world of hierarchy, and they were effective at it, though not always at ease. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>